freedom without an authority above it is not freedom at all. It's chaos. It doesn't work. Man cannot handle total freedom. They can't. That's why God in his word says, Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. the majority of them. There's some credited to Moses and different people like that. Um, A guy named Asaph. But these are the culmination of uh, basically the Hebrew hymnal. This is the way in which God was to be praised by his people. And they're songs of ascent. Um, We looked at how the book of Psalms is broken up into five um, different books, each one correlating with the first five books of the Bible uh, and the themes of those books. and just kind of how, how that all lays out. And you can go back and listen to that if you really, really want to. But it really helps to understand where we're going from here. The book of Psalms is poetic literature. Um, so it belongs in that kind of genre of, of scripture. It's, it's in the poetic books, along with Song of Solomon and the book of Proverbs, which is also wisdom literature. And so um, it helps us to understand what kind of literature we're reading to help us to understand what they're about. Psalms are broken up into 10 different categories. And I'm not going to tell you all of them because I can't remember them. But here, (laughs) some are messianic. And the the one that we come to tonight is the first of the messianic psalms, meaning that it's speaking of the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ. And Psalm 2 is actually quoted in the book of Acts by Stephen um, there in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, as well as quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, 18 different times. So it's really pointing to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And it's also recorded and alluded to in other places in the New Testament. But it all concerns Jesus Christ. It also could be a what's called a royal psalm, referring to the coronation of the Jewish king and the rebellion of some other nation. So this, this psalm is really important. Psalm 2 is very important, but it points to the future. It points to a king who was to come. Um, Israel at this time is ruled directly, or was ruled directly by the Lord. Um, What was that? (laughs) Did that whole pipe just move, like for no reason? It does that? Dude, that's awful. That's terrifying. All right. We're still getting used to, like, all the little things in this building. That is one of the things that I don't think I'll ever get used to. Oh, all the hair on my back just stood up. (laughs) And that's a lot. So um, you'll see as you get older. Israel was ruled. That's what we were talking about. Sorry. It's incredibly disgusting. But Israel is ruled or was ruled by the Lord. Who knows what it's called? What it's called? That kind of governmental system. 
Yeah, baby. Theocracy. Thank you. Paganini's. It was a theocracy. It's to be ruled by God. It was also ruled and kind of governed through his prophets and judges until the nation asked for a king. And so Saul was chosen, but not to set up the dynasty of the kingdom of Israel because that kingdom would come from the line of Judah. And Saul was from the tribe of who? Who knows what tribe he was from? Shout it loud and proud. But yeah, there it is. Yeah, Benjamin, good job. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, okay? Not that there's anything wrong with Benjamin, but the dynasty of the kingdom, meaning that a king would rule on the throne of the nation of Israel from the line of David throughout its entirety and throughout its existence was to come through the line of Judah. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was born from the tribe of Judah. That's where he came from, that's out of, and that's what that's pointing to. The dynasty of the king of Israel was to come through that line, not through the line of Saul. And you know the story of Saul? Saul was a man of the flesh. Saul made bad decisions. Um, we, we talked about it last week, how the Bible is made up, uh, often points to two men conveying two different roads, two different paths. A path of righteousness and a path of the flesh that leads to destruction. And so David and Saul was one of those examples. Now, was Saul, like, destined in the sense that when he was selected to be king, God was like, watch this. You're going to hate your life because of Saul. God anointed Saul through his prophet Samuel. God had given Saul his spirit. God had given Saul his law. He gave him his word. He said, read this. Read this and keep this, and you will be successful. God had every intention for the good of King Saul, but Saul wanted only what was good for him. And what got in the way of Saul was himself. He was a, a self, uh, very selfish man. And so the, you, know, you guys know the history of Israel. The kingdom was taken from Saul and given to David. And so David would become the king. And from his successors, both the covenant and the psalm speak about a universal kingdom of Israel that would come. So verse 1 is this. It says this. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. You're going to hear four different voices tonight, and the first one is the voice of the nations. The voice of the nations. It's speaking of the rejection of the Messiah by mankind. If you remember in the book of Acts chapter 4, when the disciples are threatened and they're beaten, and they are told, do not speak in the name of Jesus again. This is where they believe that this was actually fulfilled, that the nation was, were rising up against them and persecuting them. Um, as they were praying for the church after that persecution, they said that they quote this psalm. They say that the nations rise against him. They're trying to break the cords. But we know that nothing can be broken in Jesus Christ. Like what he set forth will not be broken. And it was a fulfillment of this prophecy as well as a comfort to them that God knows about our circumstances long before we go through them. Those people in the book of Acts, when they were beaten, when they were arrested and all of that, they took comfort in Psalm chapter 2 saying, God knew our affliction. He knew what we would be going through long before we'd ever go through it, a thousand years before. God knew our circumstances and reminds us in his word that this is the path that we're to go on, is to continue to follow him and worship him. And who are we that we would be deemed worthy by God or seen as worthy by God to be treated in this way for his name and, and all of that? But what we find comfort in ourselves, I think we take comfort in, in ourselves, is that God knows what we're going through. 
or knows what we're headed into long before we ever go through it. And what that includes then is the strength, um, the wisdom, the power to endure as well. It's like if you know, if you've ever gone on a camping trip, you've never gone on that trip before, you don't know what to bring, right? Or what should I dress for? Is it cold? Should I bring layers? Like how are you, you know, anyway. But when you know where you're going, like you know you've been there, you're like, I know how to pack. I know how to prepare. I have done this before, right? There's always this preparedness in hand. In this circumstance, through this, this prophecy, the, those in the book of Acts saw that God knew that this was going to take place. That God, God had his hand upon them. God was working in and through, even in their circumstances, long before they go through them, and even in our lives as well. God knows what you're going to go through long before you do. And, you're, and then the question that comes up in my mind is then, then why do I have to go through it, right? That's like the homeschool high five answer, right? Like, go me, that's logical. If God knows, then why, right? If you know that it's going to be hard, then why go that way? If you know it's going to be difficult, then why go that way? And the answer for all of it always is that God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. The goal of God is not to make you happy, although that is part of it. He wants you to be happy and joyful. But he's more concerned about making you more into the image of himself than he is about you being happy with your circumstances. And the way that a lot of that happens is through toughness and through difficulty and through struggle, right? You guys have all heard, like, the, the butterfly must struggle in order for its wings to have enough strength or whatever, you know, all those cheesy little or wonderful uh, descriptions of how that all works. But you guys know those, I'm sure. This passage will have its full fulfillment, however, when the Antichrist gathers all the people together to stand against the future reign of Jesus Christ. This psalm is about the return of Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. That's why he says, why do all the nations gather together? And they say, let us break the bonds. What they see is themselves being chained by this God. They're being chained by this God who won't allow them to do what they want to do. And it points us again to the end times, to the last battle of Armageddon, where all the nations will gather together and in their futility try and take on the God of the universe. Like they'll, they'll have their weapons drawn and pointed towards heaven to fight against the Lord. And you can read about that in the book of Revelation. But this passage will have that full fulfillment there in the book of Revelation. But from the Tower of Babel to the crucifixion of Christ, to the battle of Armageddon, the Bible records the foolishness of humanity in its rebellion to the living God. Every, every instance, it's, it's showing the goodness of God, the hand of God, the call of redemption of God unto people, to come unto, uh, unto him, into his loving arms, to, to experience his heaven when they die. Like The restoration that God brings to the broken life and all man has in return is like this this attitude of, of who do you think you are to tell me what to do, right? It was said that freedom without authority is anarchy. Freedom without authority is anarchy. And this is not some new idea. What you're seeing going on in the United States of America and, and it's spreading or whatever is not a new idea. It stems from something called liberation theology and all this garbage, 
And it is just that. It's garbage. It's saying that we must have freedom. And freedom without an authority above it is not freedom at all. It's chaos. It doesn't work. Man cannot handle total freedom. They can't. That's why God in his word says, who, who the Son has set free is free indeed. Because freedom is found in the parameter in which God has placed upon our lives. Under his authority. Under his way. That's why Psalm 1 said, blessed is the man who, who stands not in the path of sinner. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But his path is laid out before him by Jesus Christ. He follows after God. Because in that path is freedom. Total freedom. Because I'm, a, I'm coming under the loving authority of God. Freedom without authority is anarchy. Because authority, it doesn't kill creativity. Right? Are you with me? Some of you are asleep. I know this weird is, or this weird, this room is weird. There's pipes, they move sporadically. There's a, this weak little fan here just mocking us. <laughs> Stick with me. Authority does not kill creativity. It releases it and it develops it. It releases it and it develops it. Because think about it, an artist or a musician or a surgeon, they all are artists in their own way. Surgeons who make, it's incredible what surgeons can do. The stuff and the little stitches, you're like, there's not even a scar. Um, anywho, but you think about all of those kinds of things and all those different art forms that, that, that even uh, athletes come under as well. They all submit to an authority of truth and law. All of those times of artists and musicians, even especially, they come under the authority and truth and law of musical theory, unless it's jazz, which doesn't make any sense, <laughs> right? And even that has boundaries and restrictions, and it has graph, and it has line, right? There's linear in, even in jazz. In art, even in the expressionist, in the Picasso stuff, that's all weird, or a stack of sponges at the, the, the art museum, and you're like, yeah, it's artistic. It comes under a, a law and order as well as truth. An athlete, an athlete can play a sport, but unless he follows the rule and authority of the referees and the rules of the game, he's not playing the game, right? If some football player is like, that's it, I'm running wherever I want, whenever I want, there's no out of bounds, there's no first downs, I'm going to do jumping jacks all the way to touchdown, and then I'm going to run through the stands and like, I win. He's not, you're fine, but you're not playing the game, you're not winning, Everyone, listen, freedom without authority brings anarchy, and authority doesn't kill it. It releases it and develops it. That's why P.T. Forsyth, early church father, he said this, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. We have, we have in our country a freedom crisis where man wants freedom, which is good and true. Freedom is important. But freedom without or in does not come under authority or truth or law is not freedom at all. It's freedom for some, but not for all. Because then it becomes the oppressor. So, when they gather together these nations and they say, um, 
you know, let us break off these bonds. They're seeking for freedom, and really what they're seeking is just bonds from the devil. The man who thinks he's truly free un- without the Lord, like, you're not truly free. The Bible calls you deceived. You're in bonds to your sin, meaning you cannot say no to sin. You do exactly what the devil wants you to do. You're in control by him and him alone and by your sin and by flesh. Um, those those three. So that, that's kind of the, the idea here in the, verse, the first three verses. Verse four, it says, now a new voice will come into the mix. It says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now this is the voice of God the Father. God the Father. We're going to see the Trinity speak, um, which is really cool. It's inter-Trinitarian communication. And if you, that, that was for free. Anyway, <laughs> the, the Trinity's talking to itself, all three in one. Anyway, it's pretty cool. But this is the voice of the Father. And it says that God will laugh at the assembled might of men. Right and all and will wipe out all of them at the brightness of the coming of Christ. The Book of Revelation tells us that when all the armies gather together, that the Lord will come and with a word from His mouth, He will just wipe it all out. It's done. The battle doesn't even last. It's like minutes, moments, and a twinkling of an eye, it's gone. It's done. It's over. And so the Lord will laugh. Who shall hold them in derision? Verse five it says, "Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure." He says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, which is Jesus Christ. God has been so patient, but his patience is is pointing to this day where his patience will come to fulfillment. He says in verse 6, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Jesus will reign. This is a promise that Christ will reign upon the earth, that that Christ will, will be the king over all. That this is the decree that God gave to Jesus Christ in verse, verse, uh, verse 7. It says later on, but it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And the decree that the Father sends out is this, and this is the voice of the Son or the voice of the Father in verse 7. He says, I will declare and decree, the Lord has said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. And he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the decree. This is the voice then that comes from the Father. The decree is what? That this is my beloved son in whom I have begotten. In verse 7 through 9, he begins to explain, and Jesus goes on to say, the promise of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is over all the earth, that all the earth will come under his authority on that day. But up until the 11th century, all the Jewish commentators saw this, this psalm, as a prophecy concerning the Messiah, but was changed after Jesus fit this prophecy so well. Up until the 11th century, like, yeah, this is about the Messiah. And then Jesus comes, and they're like, "Eh, we don't like this kind of Messiah. The suffering servant, dying one, yeah, that's not the one we're looking for. Uh, We're (laughs) going to change that. And so they changed the whole idea. 
but was changed after Jesus fit it so well. So those commentators had decided that the Messiah was not the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. So they're rejecting the claim of Jesus Christ to the Messiah because he claimed to be the Son of God. So in, in, in that way, they're saying, well, well, the Messiah is not the Son of God now. We're changing our mind. Because Jesus claimed to be the only begotten of the Father, the Son of God, right? Even at his baptism, this is my beloved Son. Hear him, it says. Like, this is him. Yet this is the decree of the Father that you are my Son, and this day I have begotten thee. In the days of Jesus, they did not reject him as the Messiah because of his claim, um, or sorry, they did not reject him as the Messiah because of his claim to be um, no, they did, because of the claim to be the Son of God. That's why they rejected him. It's really important when you type stuff, when you put a not in there, it changes the whole meaning of everything, right? And then when you're reading it, it screws everything up. So that's why they rejected him. That's why they said he's crazy, because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Stick with me. We're almost there. At his trial, there in, uh, at Caiaphas' house, in the dark that night, they said, they asked him, Flat out, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, it is as you say. And they said, oh, we'll give you one more shot. Are you the son of God? And he said again, it is as you say. He tore his clothes and he said, put him to death. What, what cause do we have left? Blasphemy, right? Jesus claimed to be the son of God. And God confirms it by saying in Psalm chapter 2, this is my beloved son. And this is my king who I set on my holy hill. This is God's chosen king. It was the cause for his death. And when they picked up stones to kill him, remember earlier in his ministry, it was because he claimed and affirmed that he was the son of God. So if anyone ever asks or says, like, Jesus never claimed to be God, yes, he did. Not only did he claim it, but God himself claims it in Psalm chapter 2. So also for free. So, verse 10, it says this. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little, uh, but a little blessed are those. Ooh, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Now we have the voice of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, we had the Trinity speaking tonight. We have God the Father speaking. We have God the Son. And now God the Spirit. In light of the Father's decree, he says, and the Son's victory, right? He says, in light of what is to come, in light of what God the Father has declared, in light of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in total victory upon the cross, conquering both sin and death, the wise thing, he says, would be to surrender to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is coming to men and saying, now be wise, listen, learn, he says, from what God has instructed you. How has God instructed? Through his word. God has told them with his instruction through his word that this is the son of God. And he says to them, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. He tells them, first of all, be wise and listen. He appeals to their mind. He says, you need to have your mind changed. To listen to God's word. And that's how the Bible, it rejuvenates and renews our mind. The word of God tells us. Right? Do not, be trans, or do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's, it's the word of God that washes out the garbage of the world. It changes our thinking. That's why he said, 
uh, in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't get his counsel and the way of his life from the world, but from the wisdom that comes from God's word. And the second thing the Holy Spirit encourages them to do is to serve the Lord with fear. He says, stop serving sin and start serving God. So it appeals not only to their mind, he then appeals to their will. And as he, he says, you need a, a change and a transformation of your mind. And as your mind is changed, your will, become, your will will be conformed to the will of God and doing what God desires and not just what we desire. And then the third thing he asks of them, he says, love and trust him with, with your heart. So he appeals to the mind, he appeals to the will, and he appeals to the heart. The Holy Spirit, his, his purpose within the world is to draw men and to point men and women to Jesus Christ. To point them and draw them into the loving kindness of God. And to convince them of their need for God. The common grace of God is that all men are being pursued by the Holy Spirit. That God, through, through the death of Jesus Christ upon the earth, God sent forth his spirit to draw men unto himself. And the Bible tells us that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince all men of what is true. Right? God in his common grace, meaning those that love Jesus are now are those that have been drawn and are, are finding Christ. It's because the Holy Spirit was sent forth by the Father to draw them to himself. And those today who are not walking with God, who are, are rejecting the Lord, even them, God has sent forth his Spirit to convince them. Those people in your life that you, you think of and your mind just begins to light up with those people that don't know Jesus or those people in your life that your heart like just breaks for them. You're like, man, they're great people, but they don't know Christ. They don't know Christ. And they just they need to know Jesus. Guys, the Holy Spirit is working on those people. The Holy Spirit is sent forth to draw men to these very things, that their minds would be changed and convinced of God, convinced of his love for them, that their will would be changed to stop serving the things of the world, to stop serving the flesh, and to begin to serve the Lord and to love and trust him with their heart, to give their heart back to the Lord. So that is the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, blessed are those who put their trust in him. There's a blessing involved. Isn't that cool? You see all three voices of, of, of the Trinity. Um, different, but yet one. And if you have any questions about the Trinity tonight, um, Billy knows everything there is to know about it. And he has all these really cool illustrations, like the egg, you have the shell, the yolk. And the yellow part, which is the or the white part, all the egg, but yet separate. Uh, there's also the orange, which is like the peel, the meat, and the seed. All the orange, but yet different. Eyes. <laughs> it goes on and on. Anyway, sorry. I was a junior high pastor for a really long time. And every once in a while, it still comes out. It's still in there. Yeah, PTSD stuff, too. <laughs> all right. The smell of Axe body spray. It will trigger in my mind this reflex and gag. I'll start to gag because of things that have happened in the past. So anyway, Psalm chapter 3. We're going to go through this quick, and we're just going to read. I'm going to read the, these eight verses, and then we'll talk about what's happening in the life of David because this is a Psalm of David. It says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say to me, there is no help for him in God. 
But you, O Lord, are my shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and sleep, or I lay down and I slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. And this is the first mention of Selah or Selah or however you want to say it in the book of Psalms. But David, this is a Psalm of David. He writes this at a time in his life where, um, as you can tell, it was, it, he was under a lot of pressure. And the Bible tells us he wrote this in, uh, and it correlates with 2 Samuel, the story in 2 Samuel, where if you remember the story, David had committed a, a great sin in that he had an affair with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered. Uh, first of all, had got him drunk and then had him murdered um, and then took Bathsheba into his own house um, as part of his harem and he had gotten her pregnant. That's the whole story, kind of. Uh, the abridged version. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. And what happens is the prophet Nathan comes to him and he tells David a story. And he says, David, there's a rich man who has many lambs, flocks, herds. And there was a poor man who had one tiny little ewe lamb that he slept with, like his pet. I mean, he, he fed it, he named it, taught it tricks. I mean, it was his best little friend. And the rich man came and he took the lamb from that guy and he slaughtered it, and he fed it to his guests. And David, in this rage, says, whoever that man is, he will die. And Nathan says, David, it's you. For Uriah had one wife, and you took her, and you killed him. Like, who do you think you are? And it says that David broke. He just, he broke. And he says, I've sinned against God and no other. And Nathan says, the Lord, he forgives your sin, which is incredible. I mean, it's just an incredible story. Read it on your own time. It's a great story of God's redemptive mercy and love. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because he was a man after the heart of God, which is encouraging. He wasn't a perfect man. It's encouraging to, uh, to me because it means that God can love imperfect people. That, that's encouraging to me, for sure. But Nathan told David after his sin, like, there's going to be consequences to this sin. The child that she carries isn't going to make it. The child's going to pass. But not only that, your own family, your family is going to be affected by it. Um, it says a sword out of your own family will come against you. And that is what is happening in Psalm chapter 3. His son, Absalom, who desired to be the king, began to turn the hearts and steal the hearts of the nation of Israel towards himself. So when people would come into the city gates, Absalom would be standing there, and the Bible tells us that he was, a, he was a, like 6'2", you know, and barrel-chested, beautiful, like locks, and just one, you know, good-looking dude, and there he is at the city gates, and the wind would blow in his hair, and just look all majestic. Anyway, as the people would come in, they would come to see David to plead their case before him. He said, you know, my dad's super busy, um, but why don't you come over here and I'll deal with your case? 
He's, he's got too much to do. Uh, if only I were king, then, I mean, things would be really set on fire. You know what I mean? The leadership here, lame. So began to just twist that over time, and the hearts of the people began to be turned to Absalom. And, and they're, they're saying, you know, like, he's right. If only he were king. David is just, you know, old, old news. Like, we need a new king. And so he leads this rebellion, and David gets word of it, and he takes off in the middle of the night. He leaves um, his concubines. He leaves his wives. He grabs everything, like, that he could, grabbed a few trusted people with him, and he took off into the, into the highlands to hide. And as he's there, he writes this psalm. And it, it's not like some foreign enemy. This is his own household. This is his son who is leading an army to come and to take the kingdom from his dad. And it's at this point where David could have slid into, like, just self-loathing. and Like, this is all my fault. Like, this is, um, you know what I mean? Like, just such darkness, such darkness. And I think he conveys that here. As, I mean, you see exclamation points. You see it all over. Like, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Like, the stresses of life were big, but look how much more has been put on my plate, and I just can't take it. Like, I'm overwhelmed, is what David is communicating. I am overwhelmed. Things are rising up. Like, I can barely keep my head above water. God, do you not see me, like, struggling? My lips are just above, like, I'm up to my nose underwater of stress and pain and, and, and fear. Many are they who say that there is no help for him in God. People were saying there is no help for this guy. Like the word help is the word Yeshua. It's where we get our word for salvation and Jesus. Like there is no Jesus for him is what it would be translated. Like look, at this is a result of this guy's sin. There's no hope for him, people are saying. And David begins to believe the hype for a second. Like, maybe they're right. There is no hope for me. I've gone too far that even Jesus himself couldn't get me out. But then he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me. The king of Israel was known as the shield of Israel. And David said, I'm no shield. My shield is God, the king himself. He's my shield. He looks he takes his eyes off of his circumstances and what's going on in his own life. And as things begin to rise around him, he sets his eyes on the Lord. He says, God, you are my shield, my glory. You're the one who lifts my head above the water. And he says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Guys, I know we could read that and be like, oh, that's so cute. You know, like he heard him. Do you understand what's happening here? He's communicating the grace of God. David is saying here, who am I? That God would hear my voice. That when I cry out to him, I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. My kids are a wreck. Right? Absalom killed his brother Amnon because Amnon raped his sister. That's, that's the house of David at this point. David knew about it and didn't do anything about it. And so Absalom, in his fury, killed his brother because his dad wouldn't do anything about it. His family's a mess. And he says to, he sa he's saying here, who am I that God would hear me? Because God is a gracious God. And there is no one who is too far gone that God 
will not extend his hand to if they will simply ask and reach out. That's grace. That's mercy. That's love. He says, he heard me from his holy hill. I laid down. He says, in all of the stress, I was able to just lay down. I finally slept. And when I awoke, I was convinced of the providence of God because I woke up. God didn't kill me. <laughs> anyway, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 then who have set themselves against me all around me. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You know what I love about the Bible is that it paints all of its heroes. Like David and Moses are the two biggest figures in, in the nation of Israel's history. Like there is no one better than Moses. And King David is like the man. Everywhere you go in Israel, it's all about King David. David this, David that, David, David, David. David and, and all that. These are the heroes of the, of the people. The Bible does not lie about the history of its heroes. It paints them as they are, which is evidence for, for the validity of the Bible, but also it is the evidence of a gracious and merciful and loving God. If God can love an imperfect person like David and he can love an imperfect person like Moses, who also was a murderer, by the way, killed an Egyptian, no big deal. Um, that was pretty messed up. If God can love them, what does that tell, what does that tell us? I'm a sinner just like you, but it does tell me that God loves imperfect people. I'm an imperfect person. It reminds me that God loves me. He cares about me. The last part there, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon you.